The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. A special weekend edition of the podcast, in part because of the report last night from Ian Rappaport of the NFL Network that Washington offered Seattle multiple first-round picks for Russell Wilson. Seattle did not accept the deal. You're going to hear Ian Rappaport's description of Washington's big swing for Russell Wilson here in a moment, and then I'll give you some thoughts uh, in follow-up. Uh, just a reminder, and I know it's annoying to some of you, but sorry, I've got to do it. And those of you that have um, delivered on this, thank you so much. But if you get a chance to rate and review the podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify, please do it. Uh, what I do know, based on our daily listener count, is about 12% of you have rated and reviewed the podcast. That's actually not bad for a podcast. Um, it's pretty good, but it means that 88 to 90% of you have not. Uh, and most people don't actually take the time to rate and review us, but uh, any podcast. Uh, but it'll take you literally five seconds to rate us five stars, and it'll, it'll take another 30 to 60 seconds to write a one- to two-sentence review about the podcast. It really helps us. This was a review from WFTWTF on Apple. Uh, the show is a nice mix of local and national competent sports takes and tomfoolery, T-H-O-M, uh, foolery. Uh, this from Travis in Fort Hunt. Uh, even if you don't like D.C. area teams, I don't, but I live here, but I'm not from here. Kevin's show never disappoints. He's a real pro, covers plenty of national topics. And when Lavero is on, they could talk about the Dewey Decimal System, and it would be more compelling and entertaining than nearly everything else out there. To quote Judge Smales, top-notch, top-notch. Uh, thank you, Travis, uh, in Fort Hunt. Um, this is from Louie on... Uh, Apple uh, reviewing us. Big Washington football fan here from Niagara Falls, Canada. So the Canadian side of the falls. Even though I'm not a fan of the other area teams, I love listening to Kevin, listen to his radio show on 980. Tom is great. I find myself laughing the whole episode when it's the two of you. Uh, was supposed to come see Washington this past year, but COVID shut the border. I hope to come uh, next year. Thank you, Louie, uh, from uh, Canada. And uh, many of uh, you have written in here uh, over the last 
few days. Much appreciated, uh, really. Um, and those of you that haven't done it, if you could take a minute and do it, it would be great. Uh, real, uh, another a reminder or another um, uh, suggestion. If you missed yesterday's podcast, uh, Jimmy Patsos was on it. Jimmy is one of my favorite people. Jimmy is smart. Uh, he's interesting. He's um, a basketball coach, obviously, at his core, a bartender uh, at his core as well, a salesman for sure. Uh, but Jimmy and I covered everything you need to know about uh, Mike Shashevsky and Coach K's run at Duke. Uh, you can listen to this well after tonight's Duke Carolina game. Uh, it's not going to be uh, dated at all. Uh, but we got into a lot of other things. The Terps coaching search. Uh, we touched on a lot of the old uh, famous bars from uptown to downtown to Georgetown. Um, we uh, talked briefly about the McKinley assassination. That's how it always works. Uh, with Jimmy Patsos. That was yesterday's show. Okay, let's get to the news from last night. Juicy news from last night. Washington's first reported big swing at a franchise quarterback. This was Ian Rappaport from Indianapolis describing it. Yeah, the Washington Commanders, no doubt one of the teams that is very much in the quarterback market, serious about potentially acquiring a big-name quarterback. And here is how serious. Sources say that earlier this week they called the Seattle Seahawks about trading for Russell Wilson. I'm told they made an offer, a strong offer involving multiple first-round picks. Now, the deal did not go anywhere, and Seattle really hasn't engaged at all on potential trades for Russell Wilson. But this really does show you how deep and how strong the commanders are willing to go for a potential quarterback. And you think about their roster and the way it's constructed. They got a lot to like. Really good young receivers. They got a good offensive line. Tons of studs on defense. Got a good running back. Really just need a quarterback. They do seem to be a team that is a quarterback away from being good. And they are uh, very, very willing to go where they need to go to acquire one, Chris. Tell us uh, earlier this week that uh, no dice, Russell Wilson's going to be our quarterback this year. Isn't that what Pete Carroll he, said? He did say that, but then general manager John Schneider said at least he's going to pick up the phone mm. and at least talk, but this one didn't go anywhere. Okay. There is a written version of Rappaport's uh, television appearance last night on NFL Network. Um, there are tweets from Rappaport. I wanted to read one additional line. Uh, the clubs made calls throughout the league in hopes of striking a deal. He also emphasized that in a tweet. That's very consistent uh, with some of the reporting, like John Kimes reporting from earlier in the week, where Kimes said that Washington had reached out to all 31 teams in the league, all the other 31 teams in the league, to find out about quarterback availability and cost to acquire an available quarterback. Uh, to which Ben Standig said yesterday on the podcast, yeah, that's probably not true. They talked to Martin Mayhew, and Martin Mayhew essentially said, well, there aren't 31 teams that have quarterbacks that we would be interested in. Of course, of course. But the reason I bring it up is, look, they're going after a quarterback. They've been telling us that all along. And this report, I believe, that they went after Russell Wilson. In fact, I believe Russell Wilson was plan A. But there's something else going on here that I find interesting. Some of you ripped me a little bit um, for my tweet last night. That's fine. But I tweeted out uh, with Ian Rappaport's discussion of what Washington had offered Seattle. I'm glad they're trying, and it's clear they want all of us to know that they're trying. But I'm glad they're trying. 
Um, that wasn't really meant to be flippant or condescending, to be honest with you. I just find it interesting how hard they are working to get the message out to their current fan base and, more importantly, to those that are considering uh, being season ticket holders or being fans of the team. They really, this year, want everybody to know. Rivera said it. The reporting has reflected that. And now we've got an actual offer of multiple first-round picks for one of the three elite quarterbacks that are available. They want us to know it. I have a pretty strong hunch that Rappaport, more likely than not, uh, got the information from this side of the equation, the D.C. side. I can't tell you that that's 100% by any stretch. It would just be my hunch. It would be consistent with you know the information that Kime got. I think they really want everybody to know how hard they're trying. They think it's beneficial to them. I'm not sure if it is or isn't. And I'm not knocking it because it aligns with their interests, which, you know, their main interest, their main offseason, you know, priority, get a quarterback and get the best effing quarterback you can get. But I think that this is an effort to, um, you know, really let everybody know how hard they're trying so that in the event they don't land on one of these key guys, there's not like this disappointment that they didn't go after him. It's funny because last year, you know, I don't think they cared if we knew that they made the offer for Matt Stafford. Because remember, Ron Rivera's position was, yeah, we'll we'll have time down the road to get the quarterback. Right now, we're focused on building the team inside out, offensive line, defensive line, block by block, and then we'll go get the quarterback. And then we found out that they offered a first and a third for Matt Stafford. So kind of contradicting information. It wasn't as important last year coming off a playoff season, actually, for their uh, customer base, um, their fan base, to, uh, to, to know that how, how hard they were trying to get a franchise quarterback. I mean, they didn't necessarily – they felt they needed one, but they didn't feel like they needed to tell everybody that they needed one. This year's different. Again, I don't know if it'll benefit them or not. I just find it interesting that that's what they're doing. They want everybody to know they are swinging big. And they did, according to Ian Rappaport. So let's talk about that. I think the report that they offered multiple first-round picks for Russell Wilson, I think it means that Russell Wilson is plan A. By the way, even though Seattle rebuffed them, it doesn't mean that they can't go back and offer more. I don't know that Russell Wilson's available. Listen to Pete Carroll. He's not available. Listen to Rappaport. It, you know, he said Schneider's fielding calls, but I don't think Seattle's trading Russell Wilson. But if they were to trade Russell Wilson, if Wilson were to legitimately be available, Washington could keep trying and should keep trying to get Russell Wilson. I think Russell Wilson's plan A because I think Aaron Rodgers isn't a possibility for Washington. Diana Rossini, who was on my radio show last week, said that Aaron Rodgers would not have Washington on the teams, on the list of teams that he would approve being traded to. Now, there's been news on Aaron Rodgers here um, over the last 24 hours, including the news that uh, basically Green Bay's waiting on Aaron Rodgers. 
Green Bay is waiting on Aaron Rodgers to tell them whether or not he's coming back to Green Bay or he wants to be traded. So if he wants to be traded, Green Bay is going to trade him. But I don't think Green Bay is going to trade him to Washington. They're probably going to get a list from Aaron Rodgers, and then they're going to try to trade Aaron Rodgers to those teams. And the AFC teams would be the first that they would target. So I think Washington, more likely than not, has had this sense that Aaron Rodgers isn't a possibility. But I think they've had a sense that Russell Wilson is. Because I think, well, I don't think, as I've said this way, Uh, in delivering this. I don't think I know that Russell Wilson would not be opposed to a trade to Washington. So he's plan A. Russell Wilson is plan A. What's plan B? I think it's Deshaun Watson. I think Deshaun Watson, if the legal situation gets cleared up, is plan B. As an aside, if they try for Deshaun Watson and they don't get Deshaun Watson... That one would probably be better for them if they keep it to themselves. I don't think there's huge benefit for people to know that they've offered multiple first-round picks for Deshaun Watson. Uh, But it's a different situation altogether with this franchise. Obviously, the reason being Watson with all of these, you know, these lawsuits, these civil cases, potentially criminal uh, cases uh, with sexual harassment and sexual misconduct, um, potentially sexual assault, uh, would not really align with uh, what Washington is dealing with right now as an organization. So if they make a move for Deshaun Watson, I would expect that one to be rather covert. I think that one would be, uh, that wouldn't be leaked by the team to Ian Rappaport or to Adam Schefter. Anyway, I think that's plan B. And then plan C is veteran draft choice. Now, if Trubisky's the veteran, I think he's going to have some choices. And I don't know that, you know, he would choose here if Washington's going to also take a quarterback at number 11 overall. But I do think Russell Wilson is plan A. And I don't think plan A needs to be scratched yet just because Seattle said no to their first offer. If they're going to really go after Russell Wilson, they should keep going after Russell Wilson. Don't take no for an answer. Make John Schneider go to Pete Carroll and go to ownership and say, Washington just offered us three ones, two twos, Chase Young, and, I don't know, throw in another player. Tim Settle. That's a pretty good haul. The problem with Washington in a chase for Russell Wilson is what I've said before. They just don't have the same level of dry powder, of, you know, attractive compensation. If they decided, Seattle decided to trade Russell Wilson. There are so many teams in better situations. Philadelphia, three first-round picks, 15, 16, 19, and Jalen Hurts. The Giants, the fifth and the seventh overall, two first-rounders and Daniel Jones. You know, Denver's got the number nine overall and Drew Locke. Um, You know, then you get to Houston with Watson. That could be a trade partner uh, for Seattle. Uh, So you've got more attractive teams. Washington would be more in sort of the category of 
unattractive teams to deal with because they just don't have enough. They've got number 11 and no quarterback. Pittsburgh has 20, number 20 in the first round, and no quarterback. Indy doesn't have a first-round pick. They've got Wentz, but how attractive is that? They're kind of in that, you know, the Saints have number 18 overall and then have no cap space, and they've got who? Taysom Hill to throw into a trade? So I think Seattle would have better opportunities unless Washington just started throwing everything, throwing the entire kitchen sink at them. But I think Russell Wilson's plan A, Deshaun Watson will be plan B, and plan C will be the veteran. And by the way, plan C is maybe Trubisky. Uh, Plan D is maybe Mariota and a draft choice. Uh, Plan E is maybe Bridgewater and a draft choice. Plan F is maybe Andy Dalton and a draft choice. And we can keep going down the line. And then maybe plan G is Taylor Heineke and a draft choice. I'll tell you what all this reporting has done. It's really made very clear to those of you that it wasn't clear to that they want to do anything they can to make sure that they've got a better starting quarterback on the field next year. So, Russell Wilson, multiple first-round picks. I think it's plan A. I think they should keep trying um, until Seattle completely shuts the door and says, no, 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 we are not trading him, period. As long as John Schneider continues to field offers, keep sending them offers. Now, you know, I say keep sending them offers. I'm not talking about, you know, every day so that he just sits there and says, oh, this not, isn't good enough. Come back tomorrow. Um, but you don't want somebody else to get in there and blow them away like Philadelphia with three firsts, Jalen Hurts, and maybe another player, and Seattle says, yeah, that's the one we want. You've got to you keep trying. And they may not, again, it doesn't make sense that Seattle would trade him. B, it doesn't make sense that Washington would have enough to outbid some of these other teams that might be interested in Russell Wilson as well. Uh, as far as, you know, Rappaport's discussion about, how, you know, he doesn't say the word uh, or the, he doesn't use the, the description, they're close, but man, he talked about they're a quarterback away. They are a Russell Wilson or Aaron Rodgers or Deshaun Watson away from being a legitimate contender in the NFC. I agree with that. I do. And I'm not super, super high on the roster. I think the roster's average, but I think Russell Wilson is elite. And I think elite quarterback with average roster means 10, 11 wins you're in the postseason, and you got a shot. So there you go. Uh, what else did I have on this? Did I have anything else on this? I think that's it. Um, I did an interview earlier in the week, and it's the second time I've done an interview uh, with these two gentlemen. Uh, Dave Ungrady, uh, who wrote the Len Bias book, and then Don Marcus, longtime columnist with the Baltimore Sun. They have a great podcast out. On, the, on Len Bias and everything that surrounded um, the Len Bias death and the legacy of Len Bias, which is very mixed. There's something that they revealed in this interview that blew me away. Uh, you'll hear that interview next, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. 
We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You know, if I would have applied myself, I could have gone to the NBA. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But it's just like, it's been done. You know, I didn't want to, I was like, I don't want to be a follower. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shay Serrano. And we are back. We have a new podcast from Wondery. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the f-ing best. Each week, Shay Serrano and I are combing through all the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling stories, and then handing out six pop culture themed trophies for six basketball related activities. Trophies like the Dominic. Dominic Toretto, I live my life a quarter mile at a time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina wine mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. And what's more, the NBA playoffs are here, so you want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast through all the craziness. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. All right, on the podcast uh, for, I don't know, the second or third time, um, but I've enjoyed the conversation so much the first couple of times that I've invited uh, back both Dave Ungrady and Don Marcus, who have produced um, this 14-part podcast series, Len Bias, A Mixed Legacy. Dave, longtime author, um, wrote the book about uh, Len Bias, Born Ready. Don, of course, um, longtime columnist uh, at the Baltimore Sun. The guys are back. Look, before we get to where we are in this incredible podcast series, which I recommend to everybody, um, and as I've said before, you don't have to be a Maryland basketball fan or even that familiar um, with the Len Bias story to enjoy it. It's an incredible story um, and far-reaching beyond uh, basketball as well. But before we get to you know where we are, uh, what episode we're on, what's uh, forthcoming, I mean, every time we get together, we've got to talk about, you know, Maryland basketball to a certain degree. So uh, here we are um, in early March, uh, and we've now had a season, almost an entire season, um, of Maryland playing. Now, we're, we're recording this before the Minnesota game here tonight. Many of you may be listening to this after, so we don't know what happened tonight against Minnesota. But before we get to who you think the next coach is, what do you make of the season they've had? I'll start with you first, Don. What do you make of the season that they've had? Well, it's interesting in the sense that, you know, they're they're probably going to have their first losing record. Uh, Maryland's going to have its first losing record since the 92-93 season, which is right before Gary 
turned it around with Joe Smith and Keith Booth, and he had Dwayne Simpkins and, and X-Ray Hip and Johnny Rose as freshmen. So that's, that's probably going to happen unless they make a surprising run, the end of the season run. Uh, but having said that, you know, they have either beaten or played competitively with everybody in the top tier of the ACC, of the ACC, excuse me, of the, we were talking <laughs> yeah, ACC our, before. Our new, our new they, of the, yeah. Uh, yeah, of the Big Ten. And, you know, they, they just had a very impressive win on Sunday against Ohio State. They played Michigan State tough at home. They should have, they could have won at Purdue. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, questionable call at the end of the game. Uh, you know, they beat Illinois. It was without Co- Kofi Coburn, yeah. but it was still, you know, that's still a pretty good team and a pretty good win. So, you know, you, you see, look what happened at Georgetown uh, in the Big East tournament, uh, you know, and, and then making the run as a, as a really low seed. Uh, that was that was was that last year? Yeah, I guess it was. Yeah, last four, year. Two years ago. Yeah, they won the ACC last the year. Big East and, 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 and and look where they are, and look where they are now. But but uh, you know you 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 can't you know, you can't say oh they're going to lose you know they're going to lose early and go home. It it could happen and it probably will happen. But you can't say definitively that they're not going to they don't have it in them to make a run because they do have talent. They showed it on Sunday. Dave, what about their season? Uh, I, I don't think anybody should be surprised how it's evolved. Um, I think it, it probably took a couple weeks or perhaps a month for the players to, to, to adjust. Uh, Manning as was already there on the bench, and that made it easier. But I think this, this had, was just such a surprise to so many people, and, and few if I don't, I don't know of anybody who anticipated this that maybe – you know, Mark and his family and maybe a couple in the athletic department. But um, I'm not surprised how it's evolved. Now, typically, as I've seen over the years, as these situations happen, after players get used to it and, and the coaches get used to their new roles, and, and toward the end of a season, especially when the team is not really a contender to win, not, not even close to being a contender for the regular season, you can relax a little more. And there's more pressure on the teams who are – atop the league, and they're trying to win the regular season, trying to get a better NCAA tournament seed, et cetera. So they're in a good position, I think, emotionally, psychologically, than, than most teams in the league. And they've, they've played pretty well in the last few games. Uh, and, and if you look at the, the schedule, uh, Minnesota beatable tonight, Michigan State be a little tougher. They, they could end on a two-win two roll. Um, a two-win streak before the tournament, and who knows what happens in the tournament. So I'm not saying this that I have a lot of optimism, but I think they're in as good a situation as maybe they they can expect at this time. Yeah, I mean, Don, you may be a little bit premature in saying that this is going to be the first losing season. Um, they, they could still um, uh, eke out uh, a winning season or certainly a 500 season at this point. Um, a, a follow-up to this, because I said this, uh, I've said this a couple of times over the last couple of weeks, and this is meant in no way to be disrespectful to Danny Manning at all, um, but he was put in a tough position, and I think he's done a great job. But I believe that if Mark Turgeon had coached this team, this team would be worst case sitting on the bubble, you know, with a chance to make the NCAA tournament. What do you guys think? You know, I agree. I, no, I, I agree. Yeah, that's why I think you, I'll, I'll be briefed on. But, but you know, that's why I think 
it, Turchin had his reasons, but there was not much forethought about how how him leaving, his leaving affects the players, their seniors, seniors, their year. Man, stick it out for the year. There could have been something else more that we don't know about. There usually is, but stick it out for the year and see where it goes. At least for the benefit of the players. Don. <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I, I, I don't think I would have said that. But having watched them, or, or I haven't really watched a whole lot, but having seen the results of, of some of these games, and, and just knowing that, you know, Mark had a way of, uh, you know, really sort of beating, beating teams when, they, when their backs were against the wall. They, they usually play pretty well. And in this case, their back would have been... A, Against the wall, maybe more than ever, uh, and 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 his his coaching job he knew was going to be on the line. So you don't know what would have happened with him, the way he coached, and and maybe he you know he may have coached differently, knowing that hey, you know it's either it's, I'm either going to be here or I'm not going to be here, so I might as well just loosen up and 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 coach coach you know not to lose but to win that type of thing, which I think sometimes he did. When he had really good teams, he coached not to lose, and um, you know. So I think you might you, you might have a good point. You know, he look at the look at the job he did last year uh, when they they started whatever they started one and six in the league, and everybody wrote him off, and then they he, you know they sort of fell into the tournament and they won a game in the tournament, uh, and 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 they you know they certainly had more talent you can say because they had. Aaron Wiggins, who's now actually starting for the Oklahoma City Thunder, uh, but but you know it wasn't you know they didn't you know Fats Russell has come on and played really really well the, the second half of the season uh, you know and 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 is the player that they expected him to be you know from the start and he wasn't he was really resistant now he's putting up decent numbers decent shooting numbers every night and 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 if they had had that at the beginning of the year. Mark Turgeon might still be the coach. Yeah, I think it's everything you said, and I'll just throw in this last one. I think that the one thing that I think it's almost impossible to debate during his time at Maryland, Maryland was always a well-coached defensive team. Uh, they they were really good at scouting their opponent. They, they just were good and tough typically defensively. Now, some of that, you know, that led into that was their pace of play offensively. But, like, I don't think Iowa would have ever scored 110, you know, at Xfinity Center. Um, I think they've improved defensively here recently, although although, although really with Ohio State, they just, they just missed a lot of open shots. But I think it just would have been a better defensive team, and it would have been the difference in some of these tight games. Like, you know, the Purdue game that they had a chance to win, the Michigan State game they had a chance to win, obviously the Wisconsin game. I mean, you're talking about three ranked teams that they lost by a combined four points. He was also really good in these tight games, you know, over the years. So I think, you, you, you know, you take – you get two more wins – and they'd be 16 and 13 and 8 and 10. And that in this league would have been bubble material, you know, with a chance to make a run here down the stretch to get in. So I think that's the big difference. So let's move on to what's next. What is next? Who's their coach going to be, Dave? Uh, I'm liking actually the uh, Seton Hall coach, Kevin Willard. And I, I'm, I'm using. Uh, um, part of my selection is uh, I'm, a, I'm a New Jersey guy, and I've, I've followed a little bit of, of 
college basketball in New Jersey. Don certainly followed it closer than I have, but I've been talking to my brother up there lives in New York City, and there's a lot of discussion about Willard moving out of Seton Hall. He's doing a good job, doing a really good job there. He's a fairly young coach relatively compared to the other candidates, and and he's he's a big upside. Um, he, he's, he's young enough, uh, hasn't been around long enough where he has the problems like a Patino has or, or some of the older coaches, uh, some of the issues, some of the um, uh, uh, disciplinary issues they've had. But um, that, that would be my pick. Um, and the other, I'll also add this a little bit with something, a name that's not on these lists and probably for a good reason, but this would be an emotional pick. And I've got to be general in, in how, I, how I explain this, but I've had some discussions with some people within Maryland Athletics, and uh, one of them brought up, man, we should get, we should pick, have Walt Williams as the coach. Uh, it, it would be a very emotional pick. It's not a very practical pick. He's never really coached, as far as I understand. But who's, a, who's been a better ambassador for Maryland basketball than Walt Williams over the years? Uh, but as a practical pick, I don't think it makes any sense, but I just thought I'd throw that. Uh, before you answer, Don, I'll just tell you, I love Walt. Um, Walt, you know, has coached at the youth level for a long time. In fact, I'll just tell you real quickly, um, I coached against Walt in a summer league game. Um, this was, I don't know, five, eight, seven, eight years ago. I think the kids were eighth graders. You know, they were, they were 14, 13, 14, 15-year-olds. And in a gym, I think it was Blair. Um, I think it was Blair. Uh, on a blazing hot uh, July afternoon with no air conditioning in the building, Walt and I coached <laughs> against each other in a four-overtime game. Um, and and, and we, we, we still occasionally will talk about it. It was the two of us, I think, were going to wilt before the players did. Um, but it was just a brutal hot game, but it was just a memorable game um, to which we we eked it out by a point um, uh, at the end. But Walt Walt really knows basketball and really can coach too. Um, I don't think that's practical, though. Do you? I mean, I, 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 I it, yeah. Go ahead. Well, no. Then someone in that someone in that discussion said, "Well, look at look at um, Jawan Howard." But Jawan Howard had coached right for six or seven years with the Heat, so that's he's right. got a. He had, he has had a much higher level background in, in, in coaching, so that, no, I just don't think it happened. But Don, I'll, I'll throw it to you. Yeah, and I and I think by the way, yeah. Walt also was coaching as an assistant. I think at Sherwood when his son was there. I think or was helping out. I, I forget. Walt would be able to answer that. But but Don, go ahead. Who's who's their next well, coach? Well, after hearing that story, you know, how come your name's not on the list? <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, right, right. I like you can uh, put that you on your list. Well, I'll tell you before you answer this, because this is one of my favorite stories and I haven't told it in a long time, but um, you guys, I think, know for years working at 980, you know, we were in the same building every day with Coach Thompson and Coach Thompson's show followed my show in the middays for, I don't know, eight years. So every single day, you know, I'd walk out of the studio and Coach Thompson would be, you know, walking in. And many days, like he would just hang out in what we called our bullpen area. And he would say to either Tom Lavero, because Tommy and I were doing middays, or me, his t- his term of endearment was to call everybody by by MF. You know, he'd say MF-er. And, then, and so one day I was telling the story about how, 
Um, I got teed up in a game that past weekend, the team did, because I called a timeout that we didn't have. Now, just so you know, I, I turned to the scores table and I said, do I have a timeout left? And they said, yes. I called the timeout and then all of a sudden they waved the referee over and they said, uh, he doesn't have any timeouts left. To which I said, what are you talking about? And the referee said, sorry, it's whatever's in the book and they teed me up. So anyway, I walked out of the studio after telling that story on that particular day. And, and coach to coach is waiting for me in the bullpen. And he goes... MFR, how old were these kids? And I said, uh, this, these were seventh graders. You're telling, he said, and how many timeouts do you get in a game? And I said, I think we get four. You're telling me in a seventh grade basketball game, you called all your timeouts? What's wrong with you, boy? And I just started, I started laughing so hard, and he started laughing. And it was so, it was a lot of the banter that would go on at the radio station, especially with Coach. What's really funny, though, is Coach actually got a chance because his grandson was playing in a league that was playing against, uh, it was Ronnie's son, was playing in a league, uh, a lot of different leagues that would play against my son's team that I was coaching. So I was in gyms all the time with Coach Thompson watching his grandson play against the team that I was coaching, which was always fun. Um, he honestly turned into, believe it or not, as a, a longtime Maryland person, right? And remember the rivalry and how Maryland people thought about Georgetown in the 80s. Um, I loved Coach Thompson. He was one of the, the the real decent people ever I've had a chance to to work with professionally. But anyway, I digress there for uh, too long. Don, who's the next coach? Well, before you, I you know, I think what people don't realize about John Thompson is he played a very pivotal role in Lefty Giselle getting into the Hall of Fame. Yep, he was the guy who really pushed push that to the finish line. They became so very good that, friends. That, you know, that that's something that people a lot of Maryland fans Maryland fans don't probably don't know about but about John Thompson. Anyway, uh, I'm glad you gave me all this time to think about how I was gonna answer this <laughs> question. Because uh, the last time it's funny, the last time we were on you were talking about Rick Sapino and I said no way they were gonna hire Rick Sapino. Well, you know, I still don't think because from what I hear, uh he has a he has a uh, he has a very big buyout uh, that they're not going to be willing to they're not going to be willing to, uh, to to pony up and, and Iona did that purposely because you know they knew he was he, you know he was probably not going to finish his career there so I think that that's that's still probably you know I think honestly I think that's the guy who could turn this thing around in a heartbeat. But I don't think that's going to happen. Then you have a bunch of people, you know, like as 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 uh, as Dave said, you know, Kevin Willard, and he, I think Kevin Willard fits into the category like an Andy Enfield, like an Ed Cooley. I think they're all very very good coaches. I think they all, in in a normal situation, do a pretty good job getting the program back where it should be. But this is not a normal situation. You have a fan base that's not just fractured; it's 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 not it's really non-existent, you know, in terms of following them every day. You know, you have obviously you have big crowds occasionally for big games, but it's not it's a very you know it's a bunch of uh, front runners, and I think it's going to take some time to build this thing back up unless you get a Rick Pitino. 
But I, you know, honestly, I I would love to see them hire just for one aspect of this whole story with Maryland the last few years. I would love to see them if if they can't, you know, hit a home run. I would love to see them hit hire Mike Bray, and 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 for this reason, you you can bring bring a guy back, a Dematha guy back. You can bring in a Dematha guy in Dwayne Simpkins, a Maryland guy. You can have a Maryland presence on the staff, which they haven't had. And and Dematha has a really really good team right now, and one of its stars is Gerard Mustaf's son, who I believe is a junior. I think I think he just and, yanked. Didn't he just yank him from the team? Oh, I don't. I didn't follow that. Okay, I, uh, I didn't. Know I could that. be wrong. I thought I. I thought uh, I had some friends tell me about okay. that recently. Okay. Well, anyway, he's still yeah. a really good player, whether he was yanked from the team. Right. But but I think I you know the story the last few years is about Maryland not getting any and you know they they do have some really good players coming out the next couple of years, uh, and 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 I always believe that there's a a sneaker. A component to why Maryland is not getting these guys because I agree. The, the Matha boy, the the Matha boys team is the only team in that school that is not does not wear Under Armour. Yep. It wears Nike. Yep. And and I think that it would prove once and for all whether this was a sneaker story or the Matha Maryland story. And on top of that, you got a guy like Mike Bray who sort of has resurrected himself a little this year. We'll see how they do down the stretch, and they see we'll see how they in the tournament and if he makes a run you know maybe he becomes a more you know Maryland fans will will buy into it more but you you have a guy who's a real pro who's done this for a long time and I think it would energize him I think it would you know he's you know you look at the fact that the guy he worked for and made his career name under before he went out on his own is retiring now at, at whatever age 75 or something like that so it's not like these guys retire at 65 like John Wooden did, you know, 45 years ago or whatever it was, 47 years ago. You know, you have guys coaching until they're 70, 75, and, and Mike Bray is a really, really good basketball coach. Yeah. I You know, I've had so many conversations with so many people about Mike Bray. Like, it feels so much like the hire that they should have or could have made 10 years ago that no one was super excited about because really, you know, all those years at Notre Dame, I mean, we, we you know, we, we've had a fan base complain about, um, you know, not getting out of the, the first round of the tournament. I know that there was that two-year stretch where they got to the Elite Eight, but for the most part, Notre Dame year in and year out has been an out-in-the-first-round, uh, first-weekend team. No. Um, but yeah, I, it, look, I think it's his dream job, right? Kind of like, you know, Morgan always said, there's only one job I would have taken to leave DeMatha and it was Maryland. And I think Bray would certainly be, you know, very intrigued by it, but it just seems like a 10 years ago hire to me. I don't know. That's, no, that's just I, my reaction. Yeah, no, I, listen, I, I, I'm not saying that this is, uh, this is, you know, I, I don't think there's one of the reasons I say this is I don't think there's a slam dunk hire except for Rick Pitino. And then you're, you know, and I, as I said the, the last time we spoke, it's, you know, it's hire Rick Pitino and cross your fingers. But I think he could turn this program around in a heartbeat oh, because yeah. he could get, he could get, he could get, he'll get the fan base excited. He'll get players in the portal, which they need. They're going to need whoever comes in is going to have to work the portal really hard. And, 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 and he's going to, and he's a great coach. I mean, he, you know, all, all his off the court stuff aside, 
That guy is a great coach. So you have everything you need, and you and you have to say, okay, is it worth the the PR hit? Well, if they're you know if he if he comes in and and all of a sudden he gets two or three really good players to transfer as he did at Iona, he got him he got some really good players at Iona. So if you have them, and next year they're sitting twenty and three in 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 late January, and they're seventeenth in the country or whatever. I'm coming up these stats, you know, randomly. I don't think anybody's going to talk about well, what happened at Louisville and what happened at you know, at you know, all these other places. I think they're going to say, "Wow, we got Rick Pitino and we're back." Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. The, they will sell out season tickets within three weeks after hiring him. The building will be packed uh, even in you know November and December. He'll use the transfer portal. They'll be ranked in the top 20 next year, and within three years they'll be a legitimate challenge to win a national championship. And all of the negative PR, and I don't even know how to define that because I don't know what would be coming, but it would be forgotten in this day and age of NIL, transfer portal, and guys like Will Wade who are legitimate crooks you know, on wiretaps offering players money who are still coaching um, in the sport. Uh, it would be... It would be the life, uh, you know, injected into a, a program that right now feels very stale. I agree with you. Dave, do you have any thoughts uh, yep. on that? I, and when you talk about Patino, I'm thinking you would hope that at this time in his life, he, he's attained so much wisdom, uh, perhaps I'm being naive, that, that he would know, okay, do I really need to do that anymore? Right. And can I coach a basketball program and, and not have to worry about doing the – the crooked stuff, um, I, you know, people don't change perhaps, but I, I would think so let's give them the benefit of the doubt. I mean, you're, you're not thought like you're 45 and you got to prove yourself. Um, and plus, what, what motivates him now? I'd like to know what motivates him now as you get older. Well, we haven't seen Coach K really um, uh, fade in, in that area, but, um, and Patino's a rare breed. So I, I think an advantage of hiring him is, is sort of an idealistic evaluation. You know, why would he want to do this again? Why would he, why would he want to do anything uh, that's considered against the rules here? Well, maybe I'm being naive, but I'd like to think that way. Yeah, and I think also it's become more wild, wild west just in the sport right now anyway, where it seems like a lot more is happening. That's a good point. Right. Yeah. So, all right, right, let's let's get to the podcast because I know you guys are limited on time. So it's a great podcast, Len Bias, A Mixed Legacy, 14 episodes. You guys are on episode nine right now. Um, first question, so what's been the overall reaction so far, I mean, what kind what kind of reaction do you guys hear from people about uh, about this podcast and those that have listened to it? I'll, I'll offer one that uh, I don't know if I, I mentioned the last time we were on, but um, uh, and this is Derek Lewis, who was a teammate of Lent. <coughs> excuse me, and and I think a lot of, a lot of people that we talked to initially when we uh, uh, interviewed them for the podcast, they didn't know what it was going to be like. They thought it was going to be like a lot of the, the impression I get is it's just it's sort of in your format, um, uh, Kevin. People talk about things and there's no, you don't throw it to tape, and, and so it's not heavily produced in that regard. Uh, we took the position we wanted to tell this, this in-depth, deep narrative story about Len as completely as we could, and it's taken a lot of time and effort and work, which, which it, we're not, I'm not complaining, but it's, it's just the process. So Derek's response was, man, I didn't think it was going to be like this, 
and and uh, it's just been his response. It's been great. I mean, I love listening to it. All the voices you get on it, you get different people talking about it who were there, primary sources, etc. Um, now, on a more objective level, since Derek was, was on the podcast, uh, when we talked to the people at Octagon and the producer, uh, the producers there, and, and helping us produce it, uh, they're very happy with the numbers. Um, to the and one of our goals of of this, a primary goal of this uh, podcast series, Kevin, was to take it to the next level. How can we produce a video documentary from this uh, all this information? And the initial thinking was the most significant part of the story is the criminal justice aspect of Lens Death. Right. How it affected uh, federal legislation related to cocaine uh, uh, prison sentences. And we are, we're being told from Oxygon that they're in discussions with ABC about producing a documentary on that. And there, there's interest out there. There's nothing definite, nothing signed. You know how this works. There's a lot of talk sometimes, but... My feeling is there's there's a lot of interest in getting that part done and fairly quickly, because that is that is a topic that is it's a contemporary significant topic. Yes. Um, uh, uh, criminal justice related to, uh, to to cocaine crimes and and there's a political tie-in now with the, the sentence. Uh, the the um, U.S. Senate is considering a new uh, bill called the Equal Act that is. Um, uh, would get rid of the dis- disparity of crack versus co- uh, powder cocaine sentences. So no matter no matter if you have one or the other, you're getting the same mandatory minimum. So it doesn't skew against uh, young black people who are who have committed these crimes. So there, there's a lot of momentum there. Um, the numbers are pretty good. Uh, and we've got a lot more to do, and we're very happy so far. So I, I want to get to something else, Don, um, next, but I just wanted to, to make sure that everybody understood that in the wake of Len Bias's death, there was a lot of legislation. This was a shocking, you know, cultural um, event uh, at the time, um, and it created uh, the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act passed by by Congress, which created these mandatory minimum prison sentences related to, uh, you know, several different drug-related sentences. I mean, I think recently, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think recently there was actually, um, I think it may have been in the last administration, a reduction of some of those mandatory minimums. Um, But but I I don't need an update on that. I, I wanted to go to um, you know, that's a very significant part of what happened and, and, and part of the Len Bias death legacy. But I also think part of it that, that I and many Maryland basketball fans are interested in was the decision-making process after his death at Maryland and what happened to Maryland. Maryland basketball, this juggernaut of a program, you know, basically went into – you know, a multi-year period that, you know, that ended in probation um, and pretty much something, you know, approximating the death penalty um, in terms of NCAA probation. What were the mistakes made in the wake of Bias's death that really impacted and set the athletic department, not just the basketball program, but the athletic department back? Well, I, you know, go, you know, Going off of a little bit of off of what Dave said, I just wanted to add one thing, and that is that um, you know one of the things about this series is that is that um, 
people are being educated about a lot of stories that they weren't aware of, you know, whether it was the mandatory minimums and the drug laws, or even, I don't think people either knew or remember, they, they, they were, you know, it's a long time ago, what happened to Maryland, as you brought up. I, I you know, I think the, the you know, I, I always point to the, because I call it, I call it the Bob Wade error, not the Bob Wade era. And, and I think that was the, as far as basketball, that was the single biggest mistake that was made in, you know, okay, you're going to fire Lefty Rizelle and you're going to bring in an unproven high school coach from Baltimore thinking that he's going to, you know, he has a reputation of being a disciplinarian, but in reality, he was, you know, he was a disciplinarian, but as we point out in, 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 in the podcast, a lot of guys did not like playing for him who, who played for Lefty you know, guys who didn't like playing for him, who played for Lefty and then played for Gary. And, and um, you know, I think that that was the, big, the biggest mistake. The, the, you know, the, I think the fallout at Maryland, because they, they were so ill-equipped from an administrative standpoint, when, when Dick Dull, who was a terrific, you know, rising star, if not a star already in the, as an AD, was, was forced out, you know, was put pressure on him to resign, and he did. And then, again, they, they have an administrator, Chuck Sturts, running the athletic program who knew nothing about sports. It wasn't a guy who was involved in, in athletics. And he comes in, and he's making the decisions about when Bobby Ross, you know, but when Bobby Ross leaves, right. and, he, and he hires Joe Krivak, who's a really nice guy. But from what I was told for years, even, even the staff, did not think that was going to be a good move, and it didn't. And it proved to, to be, a, you know, a, a terrible move. And, and I felt bad for. I got off the beat in large part because I liked Joe so much, and I knew it was going to be a disaster. And I had a chance to cover national college sports, which was obviously a better beat. But I also didn't want to have to write Joe Joe Krivak's, you know, professional, you know, uh, you know, his his swan song. So I, there was a lot of decision made, and then on top of that. There was a lot, and Dave can speak of it because he was closely tied to the university as a former athlete, and he was, you know, he was recently, you know, it, it, it came, you know, it came, you know, six years after he graduated, Len died, and within ten years, all this stuff was happening, and he was very much involved, and he can speak to it. There was just a lot of infighting in the university among among people, you know, taking sides in it, and and there was. I remember when Gary showed up, he couldn't believe how much how much, you know, acrimony there was between different factions, you know, and, and he got caught up in it because, you know, he, he ran an illegal practice and, and it cost them, you know, it, it cost them, you know, at least the perception of things haven't changed in Maryland, whereas it was something that a lot of coaches did at the time. And, and, but, but he got ratted out by somebody who was a, a Wade supporter. What, are you t- what, what, what were you just referring to? In in nineteen, I I would say it was his first year there. He he coaches watched a practice. Oh yes 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 and, yes. I I know this story. You you've actually told and, it before. Okay, got it. I yeah, mean, very, and, and, very and, insignificant. And, yeah. But but yeah. Right. Uh, by the but, way, but, but, Bob but, Bob Wade giving Rudy Archer a ride to class was pretty insignificant too. Well, it you know it 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 again. He he gave him a ride to class after he had had 
flunked out or cheated his way out of the university. He was at Prince George's Community College. And, and you know, number one, either Wade didn't know the rule or didn't think he'd get caught. Number two, you know, I remember getting a phone call from one of the, from Tion McCoy, who, who told me that Rudy Archer, when he was living, when he was on, you know, going to PG County Community College, was still living in the dorms. And, and, and I called that, I called uh, Bob, I called uh, Lou Perkins, and, and within a day, Rudy Archer had cleared his, cleared out. Oh, boy. So, you, you know, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on and a lot of bad decisions. And it, and it cost them, and, and if not, you know, and we talk about this, and I think Bonnie Bernstein and a couple other people said, if not for Gary Williams, who knows where Maryland basketball would have been. But, you know, Walt, Walt Williams, and we spoke about him earlier, he was he was the savior to, for for Gary's program because he stayed and he gave them some legitimacy and he gave them a great co- team great player to build a team around. But in the long term, Gary Williams is the reason you know Maryland won a national championship and 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 is not an irrelevant program all these years later. It's 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 flirting with irrelevancy if they don't make the right hire. But but Gary Williams is the single most important figure in that in the in the history of that program. As it stands now, yeah, um, that's Don Marcus talking right now, uh, longtime columnist at the Baltimore Sun. Dave Ungrady's with us as well. Uh, the podcast is Len Bias and Mixed Legacy. We've talked about it before. Um, what I asked Don, Dave, is what I want to focus on a little bit more because I want to go back a step in terms of, you know, before you know uh, the, the hiring of Bob Wade. In hindsight. Does anybody believe that it was wrong to fire Lefty Drizel? Oh, a lot of people, sure. And we, we present that in the podcast, um, uh, the section. We have, uh, we have uh, it's broken up into three sections. The second section of three episodes focuses on, on how Maryland reacted and how it impacted the athletic department. Oh, there, were, there were a lot of people who weren't happy with that. But uh, people who knew Lefty personally, uh, we, we talked quite a bit with Russ Potts, who is now deceased. He passed away in December, but he was, he was the, uh, first marketing director for Maryland Athletics when Lefty started and, and Jim Kehoe came in as an athletic director in the early 70s. And so he knew Lefty very well. And, and, and JJ Bush, who was his head trainer now, uh, for, for many years. Now they knew him and, and they're going to have sort of, uh, a less objective observation about it, but the point with Lefty is, and, and, and J.J. Bush says this, Lefty didn't put the cocaine up Len's nose. Len did. Len was an adult. He was responsible for that. Did Lefty handle it as well as he could have? Probably not, but that's Lefty. He spoke, he said too much publicly, and, and he put himself out there to be criticized and slaughtered like that. Um, but there was there were a lot of people who, who who have been involved with the program, either working there or fans of Lefty, and liked it, liked his personality and what he did for the program. Now, now that said, um, I'm not surprised Lefty was was re- released because he was there had to be a scapegoat, and he was it. Dick Doe was not the scapegoat. Lefty was. He was he was the head coach. When when things happen in a program like that as a head coach, you're in charge, whether you've had anything to do with it or not. So that's an he's the easy pick to remove in that sense. Um, if I can get back to a little bit now, now going, going to Wade and that selection process, it was not Wade's, uh, it was by no fault of Wade that he was selected. Right. 
uh, how do you turn that down? It's, it's an opportunity that a few people were turned down, but once he's in there, he didn't help himself. And we, 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 uh, address this quite specifically in the, in the podcast and this, in the episodes we, we feature about Maryland athletics. Um, Sue Tyler was an assistant athletic director at, at Maryland then, and she was actually a coach when I was at Maryland. And she was, she's an iconic Maryland athletic figure. Uh, and she talks about how, how, um, Coach Wages didn't didn't want anybody to help him. He would go into his office and they would have meetings. He wouldn't show up for meetings and all the other departments that were in charge, you know, in charge of, of recruiting and, and guiding him in all those areas. He didn't want their help, according to that. Uh, Chuck Walsh, who was in media, and 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 uh, I'm sure Don remembers sure. Chuck Walsh. Sure. Um, he he was quoted in the in the podcast series saying that he thought from day one that everybody was against him. Um, and, and I, I can't blame him. He was, everybody was pretty much white, uh, white male or primarily white male athletic department. And here comes this, this, uh, this black gentleman coming in as a, as the coach and, and he didn't feel comfortable and he didn't let himself, um, um, uh, get comfortable. Uh, there, there's a, there's a very, pro, um, uh, profound story that we tell on the podcast about. Uh, John Brown, who was the owner of Bentley's restaurant, yep. uh, visiting visiting um, uh, Bob at his home at the, at the request of Bob's wife, and he was very upset. And here's Bob Wade crying in his chair, uh, frustrated that he was not invited to a, a meeting by by the Terrapin Club. Why do they? Why don't they invite me? Why don't they want me? And John Bates says they should. So he didn't help himself. The environment didn't help him. It, it was a bad thing. It was a hard thing for, for him. It didn't turn out well, and it had a lot of repercussions later on. I look at it a little more um, more broadly within athletics over the next couple of decades. How the how the athletic department struggled to deal and accept, or at least not embrace, but accept Len's legacy. It didn't really happen until 2014 when he was inducted into Maryland's Athletics Hall of Fame. And, and uh, Bob Gagan, you may, you may, may remember sure. Bob Gagan, of um, Kevin. He he recently passed away as yeah, well. The, the, the nicest, nicest Such a guy. nice man, yeah. Um, McDonald's Capital uh, Classic. One of, Bob, one of the yeah. best. Right. He started the Capital Classic in the 1970s and a pioneer in, in, in starting high school all-star uh, games uh, like that. But um, he was the first one to induct Len into a Hall of Fame uh, in 2012. And his reason was, as we present in the podcast, nobody else had done it, and he didn't know why. I mean, he understood why, but he thought it was time to do it. Maryland hadn't done it. I'm going to be the first one. Two years later, Maryland does it. Then, then the D.C. Um, DC Sports Hall of Fame inducts him in 2018. And then just this past winter, uh, I'm sorry, just this past November, National League of Basketball Hall of Fame inducts him. So he's finally getting his, his due as far as honors. But it took too long. I think Maryland Athletics lost its way um, uh, there for a bit. And just, how are we going to deal with Len? They tried to forget about it, and, and they couldn't. You, how do you forget about this story? You know, uh, we in the media, we didn't let it uh, be forgotten. And, and maybe to sell newspapers or sell online, uh, uh, you know, get eyeballs on, on online content, whatever. But as we present in the podcast series, there are so many people who say, I'm glad this story has never been, uh, we haven't forgotten about it because there were too many lessons from it. And if Maryland has sort of taken that approach, 
they wouldn't have had to struggle as much, I think, accepting it. Uh, just real quickly, because I think the Bob Wade thing, which we haven't really talked about in our previous um, discussions, I think it's such an interesting time, and there's so many stories about you know, why he got hired and who hired him. And, you know, from this was Chancellor Slaughter and John Thompson, the two of them, basically John Thompson, you know, this is a legendary story among, you know, Maryland fans that basically Chancellor Slaughter, who was black and John Thompson, who he called to get a recommendation uh, from, and he recommended Bob Wade that essentially those were the two people and no one else was involved in picking the next head coach. Is that true or not? Uh, yeah, I think it expanded uh, a little I'll, bit. I think on, he also I'll, I'll Dean, let you that. Uh, yeah, he, he also called Dean Smith. He may have called Jim Valvano. Um, you know, so there were uh, you know other prominent coaches involved. Bob was, inv- you know, because he was running uh, he was running the Nike camp during the summer. He got to know all these guys, and listen, he did a great job at Dunbar. He did it, you know, he was also the football coach. He yes. was a very successful football coach. People felt he was even a better football coach than a basketball coach because he, he, he did more with less in terms of the football talent at Dunbar, you know, at the city school. Um, but again, I think that, you know, it was, it was a, a time where John, you know, where, where, uh, John Slaughter was trying to, you know, and I understand he, you know, Bob Wade was the first black coach. In the in the history of the ACC in in foot in basketball maybe in in any major sport and he was he he was trying to you know I understand that and there had been successful you know John Thompson was not an immediate success at Georgetown I mean there was a very very you know terrible incident you know with with a with a racial epithet right. involved with, yeah. when Thompson you know when Thompson had a terrible I think they finished like three and twenty three his first season or something like that. You know, and Nolan Richardson, you know, was the was the head coach at at, at at Tulsa and then at Arkansas. So, you know, it made sense that the ACC needed a black coach, but I'm not sure that you know that Bob Wade was 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 really uh, in and 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 Dave spoke really well about it. And I knew that at the time. I had a conversation with Wade in his office one day. He wasn't in tears, but he was saying, and he basically said. I'm not. I'm not the people's choice, and I'll never be the people's choice. But on top of that, he he didn't trust anybody. He trusted. He had a guy named Woody Williams who came with him, who was sort of his. He was his. He was his. his, his he wasn't an assistant on the bench, but he was his guy because he didn't. He was told he had to take Ron Bradley and 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 Oliver Purnell, who were both both very good assistants. They both became very successful head coaches. And, and he didn't trust them, you know, because he thought that they were out to get him and they thought they were out, to, they were still left these guys because lefties still had an office on campus. And there was, you know, le- you know, there was lefty, you know, he once said that, you know, they would go sit down to lefty's office and visit with him and then come, you know, talk to him, talk to Bob. So there was a lot of stuff going on with that. And, and, uh, you know, it, it was, there was a lot of fault on, on both sides of it. If I could add a little more depth to that, uh, uh, Kevin, related to Slaughter's uh, process in picking Wade, he, he told me for the, the book that I wrote about Len that Wade was the only coach that he interviewed um, for the position. And his, his thinking was he had a good record of, of just keeping his, his uh, athletes 
disciplined and focused on academics. And that was a big priority for him based on everything that was happening. Now, he, he also told me that he did talk to, uh, as, as Don mentioned, Dean Smith and Don mentioned of Alvano, but also Terry Holland and Bobby Crimmins. He also mentioned that uh, Valvano's wife and, and um, Wade's wife were friends. So he did some due diligence there, um, but it, it, he was the one. There was no committee. He was the one making that decision, and I think that was not to the benefit of Bob Wade. Ultimately, as we see, it was not to the benefit of Bob Wade. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's your favorite episode, each of you, of what you've done so far? And then give us just kind of a preview of, of what's upcoming here over these last few episodes. Mine, I'll, I'll pick it. Has a, it's going to drop in about uh, two weeks, two or three weeks. The next episode is going to be about the team, how the teammates and Lester Grizzell reacted to it, and how it affected their lives. Mm. Uh, and it's a very long episode. It's the longest one. It's over an hour. So bear with us on that, but there's a lot there. The one after that is going to be about the family, and we have two voices in there that are, are two of the more emotionally impactful voices, um, one you know of, one you don't. Um, Lenise Bias talks a lot about uh, how she reacted not to Len's death, but Jay's death, Jay Bias's death, and before we talk about how, how she reacted and how James Bias to an extent reacted, we set it up about Jay Bias. Jay Bias, I think, is the saddest story about, saddest part about this whole thing. Um, and as we present in the podcast series, uh, there are Bob Wagner, his, who coached both Len and who coached Len and also coached Jay for one year before uh, um, at, at uh, Northwestern. Um, he thought Jay was better than Len coming out of high school. Uh, Jay had D1 offers, but his grades weren't good enough. And understandably, Len's death rocked his world. Uh, I did a piece for CNN. Um, I was doing some freelance producing then, uh, the year after Len died. And I'm, I, unfortunately, I can't find the, 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 the piece, but it's, I do remember some of it. And, you know, I could see Jay was still shell-shocked when I was talking to him for that story, the winter after Len died. Um, but he, and we, there were a prominent voice really capturing the impact of Jay's death is a player named Clint Venable, who was Jay's teammate at Northwestern, a year older. They grew up playing basketball at the rec. They learned watching Len and Brian Waller play. Brian Waller was Len's teammate in high school. Len was everything that he's got. 
Um, and I sat with, with Clint Venable for about an hour and a half in a restaurant in Prince George's County, interviewed him for the book, and we used the audio for the podcast series. You just got to listen to that. His voice is so deeply emotional talking about Jay. And he tells about how when he found out uh, Jay died. And uh, Clint was a very prominent college player at, um, at Bowling Green at the time. Having a, he, was, he was a preseason candidate player of the year. Um, and after, Len's, after Jay's death, his career was never the same. Wow. So, uh, and he, you really, you really, it really comes through in the way he talks about him. And then we, we go, we segue from there to Lenise Bias talking about how the, the family and uh, her, 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 her reaction and how she, how she, she handled everything. And we end it with uh, Len's son. Len has a son, Michael Bias, that very few people know about. There's never been a DNA done, so it's not 100% proof or comfortable presenting it that he is a son of Len Bias, how it's impacted his life. That, I think, is the most uh, uh, emotionally profound of all the Oh, episodes. my God. I, I didn't... He, Len Bias has a son. Len Bias has a son, right. He's, a, he's in his mid-30s. I, I, does uh, that... For the book, I talked to him. I don't, does, that, does anybody know this? I, I mean, I, I feel like uh, I, when I say anybody, I mean, like, this isn't something. Uh, have I just missed this discussion over the years? I had no idea. Well, it, it, there was a, 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 I mean, a reporter on Channel 7, local D.C. Channel 7, did a piece about it when I was working uh, a couple of years before I was working on the book. Um, and it didn't get much traction. And I think the problem is there's never been a DNA test done. Uh, uh, Len is listed on the birth certificate. That's not 100% proof. Um, but we interviewed the mother. Um, we for the, for the book we and, and and the podcast we have the quotes from the podcast. I met uh, Michael Bias when he was in prison. Uh, in when I was working on the book in 2010. And there are enough people as I present in the book and in the podcast series who confirm a meeting with the Bias family that we're comfortable with presenting it that way. Uh, and he struggled. He has struggled all his life, as he has said, knowing who Len Bias was, but never knowing his father. Was, uh, and it's created issues for him. So, Was the mother Len's girlfriend at the time when Len passed away? Uh, interesting question. Um, Len, as you might not be surprised, had a lot of girlfriends at that time. Okay. Uh, she, she, she explained to me she understood who Len was. She met him at a, uh, a party on the campus. She was only, I think, 17 at the time. Um, and a friend of hers knew, was, was a, a student at Maryland. And, and, and a friend of hers played, a friend of hers brother played uh, a high school basketball game against Len when she was 13. And that's when the first time she saw him, she said she had a, Fresh on him. It was the it was the um, state championship game when Len was a senior or junior. I forget what year it was. Uh, that's when she first saw him, and then she got a chance to meet him at the party on campus a few years later with her friend, who was a Tennessee at Maryland. She was still in high school. She met him. They hooked up. She said she wasn't home for like a week and a half. So they spent some, as she recalls it, they spent some quality time together. Uh, and then she. She spent time with him in the, as she explained it, she spent time with him in his dorm room. Uh, she saw him use cocaine. There's only one player of all, this is the fascinating part of the story and why you probably have not heard much about it. 
Um, not that these guys knew about it, his teammates, but I'd be surprised that they didn't. Um, only one player on that team that I talked to, Phil Nevin, remembers meeting her. Uh, Jeff Baxter, Keith Gatlin, Terry Long, I didn't talk to him, uh, Speedy Jones, three or four of them I talked to. Derek, uh, Derek Lewis did not remember hearing anything about and, him. And Phil Nevin well, did. The son, the son was born, Phil Nevin did. He was living there. He was living in a suite uh, with Len. In uh, Washington part of Hall. That last year. Yeah. In Washington, uh, in Washington Hall. Yeah. No, no, no. In, Leonardtown? In, uh, during, the, during the school year. Leonardtown, yes. Yeah, okay. And, and he remembers seeing her, and, and, and I present in, in, the, in the book and the podcast how he, how he knew it. Uh, but everybody else had they, they had no idea. The son was born two weeks after Len died. So clearly, it's hard to believe that people didn't see her in that suite. Uh, uh, and uh, she was pregnant at the time. So Lefty didn't have, Lefty didn't know. Uh, at least say they didn't know. So it's it's sort of a it's a perplexing scenario and it's mysterious. But uh, we're comfortable with all the information that we've confirmed that Daddy does have a son. Yet. <sighs> wow, that's um. That's that's yeah. fascinating, um, and just out of curiosity, was were the biases a big part of his life? You know, did they know were were Lenice and James bias? Were the family were Lens family members a big part of his life? The best we can determine is is no. There was a meeting, uh, and we never had a a one on one interview with Lenise Bias, we were able to obtain her interview with uh, Rock Newman when he had the show on WHUT mm-hmm. uh, TV, and she, he interviewed her for about 45 minutes, and she has a lot of, of, of uh, really good things to say in that interview, and that's what we use for the podcast. But, um, and since the Bias family has refused to talk to us, we never could confirm that through them, but we were able to confirm there was a meeting with the mother, with um, uh, Michael Bias, the son, and the woman's uncle, the mother's uncle who attended the meeting. And I talked to him, uh, and he confirmed the meeting. He confirmed, that was in the, the bias household. And they, this uncle and the mother also talk about, they attempted to see Miss Bias, Mrs. Bias, at speeches, just as they could see. They, they went there so she, he could see his grandson. And as they explained it, it wasn't the, they were hoping for a little more welcoming uh, reaction from uh, Lenise Bias, but it wasn't there, um, according to them. So the best we can determine, there has been very little, if any, recognition of of Michael as the um, as the son. And and the mother says that that's a big thing she wants that the, she would love the family just to acknowledge that they have a grandson. Well, I mean, look, there's so many questions that, you know, come to mind, and I'm just, uh, obviously there's one that I haven't asked you, and then we, we don't have to um, continue to, 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 to get, you know, go down this road, but was he an athlete? Was he a basketball player? How big was he? Yes. Uh, he, and we, I have a picture of him in the book. Um, you could see sort of Len in his, a little bit of, uh, more of Lenise bias in his face as I see it. And he's a has got, has a very husky build. He played. There's a picture of him uh, in a basketball uniform in the book of when he was in high school. But then soon after that, he started getting involved with drugs and dealing drugs and and had some other uh, um, criminal convictions and spent some time in jail. So he he did uh, attempt to be athletic, but to no 
to no real impact. All right, guys. I mean, I feel like we could do this forever every single time we do it, but um, I would just uh, tell there's, every... There's so much there, Kevin. I mean, this is a story that, and I think Don will attest to you, there's just so much. It's, it's never-ending. Uh, let, me, let, me let me just finish on this point. You, you asked about the reaction. Um, I, I have, I play, I, as you know, I play a lot of pickup basketball. There, there are a couple of guys I play with. One guy who grew up in the Dominican Republic, came here at age 15, um, who was, you know, played baseball, and, and he ended up in Orlando, Florida. And, and when the day Bias died, there was a great player that he played with in Dominican Republic, a basketball player named Baez. And, and he thought that this, they were reporting about the guy he played, played with in the Dominican Republic and they couldn't understand why everybody was making a big deal about it. Um. He knew nothing about Baez. And, and when he listened to the series, he, he did it. He said, I did this as a courtesy because he's a friend of mine. He said, but he couldn't believe not not only how well produced it was, but how deep we we went and how well reported it is and how and and great you know and, and it really is it, a story that he knew a little bit about. There's another guy who's from Spain who who told me he got up the morning of the of the 1984 Olympic gold medal game between between uh, Spain and the U.S. and because he's a big Michael Jordan fan as well and. He, he found out about through the guys we played pickup with, knew nothing about Len Bias. And this, it, this uh, podcast has spurred, you know, has, has made him, you know, go on the internet. I said, and I said, go look at the, ta- go look at the YouTube video of Bias versus Jordan. And he came back like two days later. He says, Oh my God, that guy was Michael Jordan. He might be better than Michael Jordan. <laughs> so there was so many, you know, there were so many people who are not, who not only are, you know, getting stories that, that, that they hadn't heard before. A lot of people didn't know, and, and I didn't know the extent of the, of, of the political implications of it until a few years ago. Uh, didn't know it at the time. You know, didn't know how his, you know, so there's so many aspects to this thing. And it is, it, 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 it's really, a, truly a mixed legacy. And, and, and as I said, Dave has, you know, we we kid about his, his his compassion for this project and his obsession, but Dave did an unbelievable job with not only the book but with this podcast. And and uh, you know, there's an episode about culture we're doing, and uh, there, you know, I think we talked about it the last time. The the musical background to this, you know, the the the, the musical uh, part, you know, the, the the soundtrack of this of this podcast. Is is a is a rapper, an obscure rapper named MC Longshot, based out in the Midwest, who who wrote a four minute rap video, did a four minute rap video about bias in in 2013, and and that's how much he was a fan. So it it it's it's an unbelievable story. It it still resonates on many levels to this day, and and I think that's why you know hopefully we'll do this documentary. And really make people understand probably the most impactful part of Bias's legacy was, was the writing of these, you know, these drug laws that, that they're now trying to, to, to try to reverse. It really is like it's so amazing because when, and we've, I know that this has gotten repetitive with me, with you guys in the past, but it's like, you know, the conversations 
the nostalgic look back, you know, um, God, I've mentioned the word nostalgic so many times today because I just uh, recorded an interview with the guys that produced the ACC or one of the guys that produced the ACC tournament documentary, which is just incredible, which is running on the ACC network. And, you know, those of us that lived through that era, but more importantly, those of us who are Maryland people, and I was in school at the University of Maryland, living in College Park Towers, living in Spring Hill Lake, living in all these different places, going to all these games, playing pickup ball every single night in North Gym or the Armory with, you know, and it's like we all lived through this era and, you know, the, the stories usually are just about, you know, the game at the Dean Dome or the final game where he took Olden Polonese's shot and threw it into the third row. Or, you know, like for me, I remember when, you know, his freshman year when he, when he beat Tennessee Chattanooga in the first round of the tournament on a buzzer beater as a freshman or the ACC tournament as a sophomore. Or, um, I, you know, I, I, the, the thing I like, I, I always, I, I, the thing that really upsets me in, when I, whenever I think about Bias's basketball career is that they never made a deeper run. You know, they got to the back-to-back Sweet 16s, they lost to Illinois, and then they lost to, to, to Villanova, who went on in 85 to win the national championship. And that was Bias's worst game of his career. If you go back, I think statistically, his Sweet 16 game uh, in, um, in uh, God, that game was, I want to say that that game may have been in Birmingham. I think it was in Birmingham when they lost to Villanova in the Sweet 16. I think he was two for 17 from the floor and they only lost by like two points. And if not for Bias having the worst game of his career, Villanova never wins the title in 85. Um, and maybe, and by the way, Maryland would have played North Carolina in the Elite Eight. Um, interesting, because uh, that's who Villanova beat that year in the Elite Eight. But it's like, you know, you remember all of the stories for all of us that were there. And, you know, whether, you know, you were at the games or watching the games, everybody remembers Len Bias, the player. But, God, there's so much more to it. There's so much more to it and how it changed the lives of, of many. I will tell you, Dave, I'm looking forward to actually the first thing you said. I know the Jay Bias stuff, and you've mentioned to me just how nobody may have been more impacted by Len's death than his younger brother. But to listen to all of those former players, and you said, you know, sort of the players episode, um, I'm looking forward to hearing that and to hearing, you know, Baxter. And I've heard Gatlin so much talk. Uh, about Len and I've heard Jeff too um, the same thing, but Terry Long and 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 Dave Dickerson, who's you know gone on to a really good coaching career. You know, obviously was an assistant on on Gary's national championship team, and um, you know all the other guys that were there. I think that'll be an, a, a fascinating um, episode as well. Anyway, um, well, Kevin, if I can add quickly, just in, in, in talking about the team episode that's coming out in the next few days. Uh, you, you, did, you mentioned someone who I think has has uh, will get your um, interest primarily in that episode is John Johnson, who yeah, was John, a freshman there, right? He, John, yes, he talks as emotionally about Len as Clint Venable talks about Jay, and the the other players don't go as deep emotionally as, as John does, um, and for and for reasons that we'll explain in the, in the podcast. So they 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 develop a strong connection after knowing each other for so so brief a time. So it, you'll, you'll, I think you'll, you'll uh, really uh, 
grasp onto that part of it as well. Yeah, John Johnson was, I think, a freshman on Len's senior team. I think he was the you know the key. He was, he was yes. Yeah, the key recruit who came in. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you guys again for everybody. Great podcast. Listen, Len Bias, a mixed legacy. Uh, episode nine is out. There are five more after this one. Um, it's fantastic. Dave Ungrady, Don Marcus, you can get it anywhere you get a podcast. I appreciate it, guys, as always. Uh, we will talk again maybe when this whole thing's over. Thank you. I hope so. Thank you, Kevin.